everyone. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. I think you're going to have a lot of fun with today's episode. We got right to the real talk and had just a great time with my guest, Eric Williamson. Eric is the president and CEO of Tailored Training Solutions, a small business that works with organizations that want to create an environment where employees are engaged, appreciated, and developed as leaders. Sounds right up our alley. He is a keynote speaker who's often referred to as the connector for his ability to make his message resonate with groups, or he's also called the change maker for his ability to inspire change and improve morale by coaching people to bring out their very best. He has received national attention in NBC, ABC, Fox, and CBS News for his expertise in leadership development and really focusing on emotional intelligence. And he is also the author of the book, How to Work with Jerks, Getting Stuff Done with People You Can't Stand. And we just talked about, first of all, how he defines a jerk at work. He was very real and authentic in talking about his own story, about how he realized he was being a jerk and the gift of someone giving him feedback and waking up to that. We talk about what to do in an environment when you are trying to get stuff done with jerks. And we just talked about so many things that are relevant in a common human experience to help us navigate this crazy life we're all trying to live in and get stuff done and be effective. I think you're going to get a lot of useful tips and nuggets out of this conversation and walk away with a few smiles as well. All right. Well, Eric, it is so nice to see you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have our conversation today. Me too. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I want to start with, I love the title of your book, first of all, because I think it's a completely universal experience that unfortunately every single one of us has had. So it's how to work with jerks, getting shit done, although you cross out shit and say stuff, but let's just be honest, getting shit done with people you can't stand. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like, I love just like the truth telling, like, yes, absolutely. Right. And so, so first of all, people go get the book, but what I love is, okay, you talk about a work jerk. And so you, um, And we're going to talk about your definition in a second, but this is what I love is right in your book, you have a quote that says, success is deliberate, does not discriminate, is not accidental, and cannot be measured relative to someone else. More importantly, success in the work environment is about how well you interact and build relationships with others. And so I want to start there because we always talk about how we are neurobiologically hardwired for connection and whether we have to be physically separated or not, it's all about our success determines on how well we play well with others. And so, so can you just speak a little bit more to kind of how you came to that conclusion about that success is really about your relationships with others and how you interact with others? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to, to share that. So it comes from, I think it's born out of a, a couple of things. My experiences of being a um an expert jerk to um transforming into a jerk expert if you will so i realized that it doesn't matter you know when i was in the workplace and i was working with people it didn't matter you know how smart and talented or gifted people were didn't matter the kind of the, the kind of titles people had or roles people carried i found out that success in the workplace it doesn't matter anything about that the true measure is based on how you build a relationship with the people that you work with, because no matter what you do, you're going to rely on other people. You need 
other people to get stuff done. And what I found out is that people, you know, who are subject matter experts, project managers, even leaders, they get burned out because they can't manage a relationship with a colleague or a fellow boss. And I've noticed that, you know, it's not performance usually, it's usually the, uh, the inability to build that relationship and maintain it so that way you can get whatever it is that you need to get done. The focus has been a lot on, um, you know, people take a lot of things personally, right? And that stuff gets in our way of trying to, you know, get what, you know, accomplish whatever it is that, that we're trying to do. And so I noticed that that's like the number one factor. I found that out the hard way unfortunately, when I went into the workplace, because, you know, when I got my first job, I was so proud to have graduated with honors. And I was like, you know what, if I can do this at this school, I'll, I'll be so dangerous in the workplace. I'll be so good in the workplace that you can't touch me. And as a result, my ego became my amigo. And it damaged relationships that I had, like with my mentor, with my fellow colleagues, and I couldn't get anything done. I couldn't get anything done. And I found that out the hard way. And I'm happy to share a little bit more about how I became that jerk. But um, that's what happens to us. We are hardwired into, you know, into focusing on trying to, you know, into what our titles are and what we do. But we don't, we don't work on managing those relationships. That's what the issue is. Yeah. Well, there's so much about that. And I do want you to talk more about your journey of becoming a jerk, but we have to, we have to get clear on how you're defining being a jerk. But, yeah. but what I love is that the awareness of, you know, your, your ego became your amigo. And I, I find so much that it is really when our ego is running the show. And I would say that in these extremely disruptive times, particularly over the past year or so, right. egos are running rampant all over the place because it's really our self-protection mechanism. I, the way that I describe ego is it's that filter we have on reality that causes us to please perform, perfect, and self-protect. And it's never our amigo. It, it always leads down a path that is not productive, particularly with other people. So, so I want to talk about, so you, before you talk about your journey to become a jerk, because I do want you to say that, but I want to read a little snippet from your book about what do we mean? How are you defining a jerk? Right. So you talk about who are work jerks. You say a work jerk is somebody who does not use social skills as a necessary job skill. And then you go on to say whether they simply don't realize the importance of social skills or whether they deny that they lack social skills, jerks make it extremely difficult for you to excel in the workplace. Additionally, they fail to manage their emotions in the workplace according to the situation and may end up acting like a jerk toward their colleagues or making impulsive decisions without taking the time to think before acting. And I love that because we always say that if there's one thing you are going to do to be effective in this life is you have to build your muscle to pause, right? Then being emotionally hijacked and react. Right. So, so with that as your definition of a work jerk, I would love for you to tell your story about how you became a work jerk when you noticed it. And then kind of, how did you, how did you go beyond that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, first of all, I'll just say, you know, how to work with jerks can be a polarizing topic because no matter who you, depending on who you talk to, people say, well, you know what? Yeah, I get it. I get jerks. You know, some people are like, oh, that might be a little offensive. And that's kind of the purpose for a title like that. But there's so much truth to it. Truth to it. So I mentioned before, when I graduated from college, I graduated with honors. I was very proud of that. 
right? Um, I was probably the, you know, next to my sister, um, we were the only ones who, who graduated from college. Um, and grad graduating with honors, that was something that, you know, very, very proud of. And I got my very first job, right? When I, the very first job that I applied to, I got. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, people want me, people like me, I'm getting my first job. Not, I could, not many people in school could relate to that. And so I was very happy for that. And I knew that I had, I had to perform. And I don't know about you, but when you first got on, you know, when you first arrived at work, were you, if you were ever assigned a mentor, like I was, um, I learned that a mentor was designed to help you get stuff done and help you, you know, guide you through the process of getting work done, show you the ropes, all those things. But see, I didn't see it that way, Rosie. Mm. I didn't see it that way at all. I saw it as my mentor trying to tell me how to do my job that I was hired for in the first oh, place. Oh, there goes the ego. Okay. Yeah, yeah right, <laughs> yep. right. So let me just give you an example. She would say things like, no, Eric, you know, don't do it this way. Do it that way. You'll get a better result if you do it this way. No, don't do it this way. Do it the other way because this is how you get these kind of results. And so I would look at her and I would say, you know, what are you talking about? Like, don't you know that I graduated with honors from a private college? Like, don't you know that? Don't like, you know I, who I am? Don't, yeah, don't you know who I am? I'm the new person on the block, right? Yeah. And so I said that I, I was like, look, I'm fully capable of getting this done myself. Let me ask you this. Do you think she was inclined to help me out after that? Uh, no. No, no, no. That, that She looked at me and she said, fine. She just dropped the paperwork on my desk, walked away. But not only was she the one that wasn't work, working with me, all the other colleagues, right? There was this one guy, his name was Charlie. He introduced himself to me. He was the most senior person in the workplace. And he introduced himself. He had this warm smile and he came up to me, goes, hi, Charlie. My name's, um, hi, Eric. My name's Charlie. Nice to meet you. And I said, hi, Charlie. I'm Eric. Um, I guess I was hired to replace you, huh? And Charlie looked at me and that was like the last time Charlie smiled. And so I didn't get any help from my mentor, my colleagues. And one cold morning, several weeks up to a month later, my boss summoned me to his office. And he said, Eric, I walked by your desk. You've got a stack of paperwork almost as tall as you. This isn't why we hired you. I'm afraid if you can't turn things around quickly, I'm going to have to let you go. And that was my first, my first encounter with losing my job. And I, that I, just, got, I just got the job. So I was uh, trying not to cry, trying to hold back some tears or that shock. I, I opened the doors, about to leave. And he said, but wait a second. I have something that I, wanna, I, I think can help you out. And so he said, I want you to attend this emotional intelligence course. And so I looked back and I said, are you trying to tell me my emotions are dumb? Like, I, what, are you, what are you talking about? He goes, no, 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 no. I've seen how you interact with people. I think this will give you a good opportunity to really understand, you know, your thoughts and feelings and how you should manage them in the workplace. So I, I you know, I attended that, 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 um, that introductory course. And that's why I found myself... After that course, I was sitting in my all-white Pontiac Grand Am, right? And I was staring at myself in the rearview mirror right after that class. And I looked at myself and I said, oh, my gosh. I put together all those things that I was, I was treating Charlie, how I was treating my mentor. And I said, I've been a jerk. But, Rosie, I didn't say jerk. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say well, jerk. Well, you know what is 
So when you were talking about people don't like the word jerk, I don't know. I can't remember if you referenced it in this book or not, but Robert Sutton's the no asshole rule. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He's like, there, he's like, let's just be honest. I tried to come up with a different word. There is no better word. Like we all know what that means. Right. So, right. so anyway, so I'm sure you probably said whatever, right. Called yourself yeah. an asshole or called yourself yeah, something right. here. Here's what I, here's what I so love and appreciate about everything you shared is that it takes so much courage to take in feedback, first of all, to be willing to look at ourselves and look in the mirror and go, holy crap, like I have not, I have been showing up like a jerk or an asshole or whatever, fill in the blank, that I am not having the impact that I want to have. And so many people, I mean, this is, I do this day in and day out with leaders, with teams. I mean, I see it all the time. And there's a huge difference between someone who is as much as it stings and sucks is willing to take in that feedback or willing to, we call it waiting in the messy middle, but do the uncomfortable work, right? To look right. at ourselves because it's not, a, it's not an overnight process, but to start right. to build those emotional intelligence skills and be more self-aware versus the person who they're, e- they double down on their ego and they're like, nope, deflect and blame. And it's like, they ratchet it up because it's so threatening to look at that. So I just so appreciate that at honestly such a young age, Right, that you you took this opportunity as a gift and to look in the mirror and all the emotions and icky crap that goes with it to go, oh, whoa. And, <laughs> and, and, and to take it as an opportunity as a catalyst, honestly, to become a better version of yourself. Yeah, you know, Rosie, you're right. And I'll just, you know, add this one thing to that, though. I mean, my, my job was on the line, right? So I was voluntold to attend this class, <laughs> right? And so I connect the dots, you know, if, if I didn't turn things around, then I probably wasn't going to have a job anymore. So that really added more incentive, more pressure for me to really reflect on what I was doing and how I was behaving. And it wasn't an easy thing for me to do, but that moment of reflection about how defensive I got when people asked me questions about my work or how I, I couldn't stand up for myself, you know, during, you know, staff meetings, or even when the clients that I was working with got so, you know, frustrated, I got defensive and took it personally and said, well, look, you know, it's not my fault. Just go back and, you know, get the job done or do what you're, whatever you're supposed to do. And it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it, it, it's necessary. It's necessary for sustainability. It's nice. It's necessary to manage your relationships with the people that you work with and serve. Absolutely. What it reminds me of is there, there's some work that, that I do with individuals and teams that's part of uh, the Dare to Lead curriculum from Brene Brown, but it's really about, we, we ask people to look at feedback and not just how do you give engaged feedback, but actually to reflect on when you've been either on the receiving end of feedback that wasn't delivered well, because it's easy to get defensive, and uh, but also to really look at times where we've gotten feedback that, that stung and that really caused us to be emotionally hijacked and really starting to be aware and be curious about, you know, what are those indicators that, oh, I'm getting hijacked and what is it, what's the narrative I'm telling myself of why this is bugging me so much, right? And then so that we can use that in the future as an opportunity to lean into curiosity, because let's be honest, nobody likes getting constructive feedback. I mean, like, I appreciate it, like, because it makes you grow better. But in that moment, when someone's giving you, even though you know, it's coming from a place of love and care, and you know, it's going to make you better, it's still in that moment, stings. Right. 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 I don't care who you are. It stings. And it's, what do you do then with that and go, do you react and do you get defensive and do you, or do you go, wow. Okay. That stings. 
what can I learn from this and what do I want to do with it? I think that's a big difference of whether someone's, what I would say is showing up as a leader in their life versus not. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a couple of ways to, to deal with those situations that I, that I learned. And, you know, that's actually what, what, I, what I share with the leaders that I, that I work with and consult with as well. Um, you know, so, sometimes when, you know, when people give us feedback, negative, like the feedback that you just, that you're not even anticipating and that you, you it's just uncomfortable. And it's just like, ow, like that kind of hurts right here. Um, a lot of times when we get that kind of feedback, we ask the question, why? Well, why did my boss say this to me? Or why? Why is she so against, you know, my point of view? Or why is this person so against this project? And a lot of times when we ask the question, why? It's like we, we kind of set ourselves up for answering that question um, that, oh, well, because this person doesn't like me or because, the, you know, um, the whole world is against me, you know? And we don't, when we ask those questions, why? We don't bother to come up with a solution to move forward, right? And so one of the things that I work with, what I work with leaders on, instead of asking those questions, why? Don't ask why. Ask the question, what? What can I do differently for a better outcome? What can I do differently to have Rosie on board with my plan of action? What are the things that we can do differently to solve this problem? And when you do that, you, you, it forces yourself to really proactively think about how to solve that problem instead of dwelling on how hurt you felt or how you know, awful that, that feedback was because it's hard to get rid of it. And, and it's like that feedback loop that just keeps going and going and going. And you start, start to self-doubt yourself, start to doubt yourself on, on, on what you're doing and, it, and those emotions really impact you. So that's why I always encourage people to ask the question, what, whenever they get that kind of feedback. So that way you really focus on how to solve the problem and not the emotions that are kind of caught up in it. I love that. And if I, if I can expand on that for a second, yeah. you know, we, in the work that I do, I always encourage other than we talk about starting with why, like Simon Sinek, why from a purpose standpoint, but other than that, we have same thing asking why completely leads to defensiveness. Like you have to defend your position. Right. And, and so, mm-hmm. so totally, totally 100% get that. What I've found is in addition to the, what I encourage people to ask how and what questions, because for example, you know, well, how might they be seeing it this way or, or how, how, um, how might they be going about this? Right. So I think the combination of good, what and how questions really lends to that curiosity of, you know, how, how, how are they seeing it this way? When I see it this way, not just, you know, what could I be doing differently, but it really lends itself to exploring and having more of that kind of learner and growth mindset. And so I think if we even just, you know, just change our narrative of stop asking the why questions, unless you're talking about purpose and you're having a visioning discussion, but when you're talking about trying to solve business problems or interpersonal problems, or you're trying to figure something out, lean into those what and how questions, I think is such an important shift. So I love that. I love that. Absolutely. So I want to ask you, so the other thing I want to ask you about is that despite our best intentions, right, I might be a very self-aware person. I might be highly emotionally intelligent, but what I've experienced in my life is that these toxic work environments can kind of suck that out of you. And you see people who start to succumb to the culture around them. Like they're coming into a new team, energized and excited, but there's such toxicity around them that it starts to, it's like almost like a a cancer or disease. It starts to infect them over time. And so in your book, you talk about four circumstances that play a critical role in creating an environment that inevitably becomes a haven for jerks. Can you talk a little bit more about those? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, and, and this was obviously, you know, let's put things in perspective. A lot of this is, is was before COVID, right? When I, when I published this book. So since then we've had some, some epiphanies, some other moment of realizations of, of, of what other circumstances that can cause this. But I, I identify four circumstances that can promote this kind of jerk and jerkish environment. Um, the first one I'll share with you is lack of training, right? So what I found is that either people who are new to, to um, an organization or new to their role, a lot of, oftentimes they have difficulty managing that situation. Sometimes it requires a third party to help inter intervene. And when you're having that conflict, it's a time waster because now you've dedicated, you know, at least an hour, up to three hours per week, according to certain surveys, just dealing with that situation. Another thing you deal with is that is emerging leaders, people who are promoted um, from like an analyst level to a leadership level. And you may be familiar with, with the Peter Principle concept, um, but this is a real thing, right? So we have people who now are responsible for leading people. They're no longer doing the work. They have to rely on other people in order to get that job done. So it requires a whole nother skill set. And sadly, people, um, especially in, in different, especially in the corporate world, world, they don't have that training to lead people. And for some reason, it's just, it's, it's absent. It's almost like our friend um, uh, Marshall Goldsmith, you know, his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. You need a whole nother skill set in order to lead people. And that's what we find in leaders who have just been promoted and people for that matter, who have seldom had any kind of training in their positions they just, and they just learn from other people. So that creates that kind of environment. I would say that that is across industries because I don't care if it's manufacturing. I don't care if it's healthcare. I mean, I see this all the time. I work with a lot with physicians that, okay, you're a good clinician, but let's be honest, being a good clinician and being a leader are very different skill set. but yet now right. suddenly they're a medical director or I work with a law firm, right? Well, you're a good lawyer. And now, now suddenly you're, you're in a leadership role or you're a good accountant or you're good, right? Or you were, you were good at, you were a good truck driver and now you're leading the truck drives. I mean, it is, it is rampant everywhere. And there's, we could go into all kinds of stats about, you know, the, the lack of development people get, which is probably why that part of our business is probably yours too growing so much. Cause I think over COVID people have realized, holy crap, this is a different ball game. And yeah. we really do not have leaders, not only that have the, the normal skill sets on a day in day out basis, but in a world that is disruptive and emotions are running high, we really do not have people leaders who are equipped to guide their teams through this. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, when I when I give my talks is that I I talk about this two types of jerks. There's jerks who are aware that they are jerks. Well, well, I'll say unaware that they are jerks, meaning that they probably didn't have the proper training or they probably just learn, you know, bad habits from other people. But then there are jerks who are aware, but they just don't care because they think that that is the most effective way to get things done. If you can lead through fear and intimidation and, and all those kind of negative habits, um, They'll, that'll produce results. And, you know, that only gets you so far, but, you know, that's one of the reasons, that lack of training, that's, that's why you get people who, are, who may be unaware that they are, you know, that they lack those social skills needed to lead people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you, you definitely see it, see it all over the place. So that's one of the, what are the other circumstances? And you talked about, you learned some new things since the book came out with COVID. So I'd love to hear those too. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the other, so we talked about um, lack of training. We also have financial uncertainty. So 
you know, this is, I think, still rings true. And when I wrote the book, um, I was referring to the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but if I were to come out with a, a second edition to this, I would also talk about the COVID situation, the COVID pandemic, and how that's um, really had a, um, caused a lot of people, people's income and financial situation to really take a, take a spiral downturn. And so when, when people's jobs are against the line, um, when, when they're, when their bottom line, when their money, when their salary is, is, is impacted, they can come out, jerks can come out of nowhere, meaning they feel the pressure to perform. Or, you know, if their money is not, if their money is not right, if they're not making anything, or if they didn't get that promotion, right? If they didn't, if they lost out on a promotion, they can get bitter, they can get defensive, they can feel like the world is against them. And they can, they can really turn um, turn the page on you and say, "Oh wow, this is the real person." I didn't realize that this person was really, you know, capable of you know this kind of behavior. Um, so financial uncertainty is a, is a big one, but we also have technology, right? And technology. Um, so when we were in the workplace, right, like before COVID, when we had that face to face, we still had the luxury of teleworking, right? Um, we've we've definitely transformed the way we do business. Um, before millennials into the workplace, oftentimes we, when we showed up, when we had to meet, um, we met face to face. When we had a certain meeting, we were face to face. Now we can, we have the luxury of meeting, you know, in the comfort of our own home, right? Um, you know, with our with our PJs on or blue jeans, you know, from the bottom, you know, from the from the top up probably looks better. Business right? on the top and uh, party on the bottom, right? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But what's happened, though, what's happened is that a lot of times when we're meeting, we observe um, people's body language. Right. When we're communicating, as you you are fully aware, you know, we understand probably less than 10 percent of the words that are coming out of our mouth. But we understand a lot more of our body language and tone of voice. And so when you are in the remote environment and let's say you're on the phone or even for this matter, um, face, you know, via Zoom, we lose sight of that face to face connection. We lose sight of being able to observe our body language and that face to face connection. And as a result, it makes us ill prepared to handle those crucial conversations. If you got to talk to an employee about a performance issue or if you've got to address a, a situation where, you know, business isn't going well and you need to talk to someone who's in charge it's going to make it really difficult to really have that connection with someone. And so it makes us ill-prepared. Now I'm for technology, just like the next person, especially now, but you got to have the right balance. And with the COVID environment, we've got to be aware of that as well. So trying to, trying to mix it up and, and identify people's preferred communication style, you know, the zoom meetings, I know we have zoom fatigue, you know, people, you know, say that often, um, but we have to be able to mix that up um, with different, with, with different communication methods and, and make sure that we're able to, to connect um, on a more personal level. So technology is one. And then the other one is um, generational awareness. So, I mean, you probably know this, right? We've got about what, four or five different generations in the workplace, right? Depending on who you talk to, right? Uh, my estimate is about five. And we've got so many people, this is like the first time ever we had all these generations in the workplace. And so what happens is you have all these different types of generations wanting to bring all different types of talent and opinions and perspectives. But when we fail to realize those and understand those perspectives, people can go off in their own corners. They can get divisive, right? They, if, they, if you're not bothering to understand someone else's point of view or where they're, com where they're coming from, or even their, their, their generational differences, that can be an issue. So, you know, for example, 
a millennial talking to a baby boomer um, about you know getting you know you know getting work done. Maybe that maybe that millennial has a different way of, of doing things. Maybe they have another approach that maybe that baby boomer or, or an older generation maybe isn't used to and doesn't even bother to understand that other point of view. When that happens is those millennials, those younger generations, they'll feel like they're not being heard. And you know, they'll they'll leave. They'll leave if they're not get if they don't feel like they're being heard. So that is, you know, that's another thing. So those four circumstances, it can cause that that environment where there's a failure to communicate, a failure to to um to really understand people's perspective and what they're going through. And that causes that kind of jerk environment, which I was talking about. Yep, for sure. Well, and I think that, you know, regardless of, I mean, obviously there are profound generational differences and we know they're very broad sweeping generalities because I know people who, you know, might be Gen X and have more traits of baby boomer or people who are millennials and have more traits of Gen X or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we talk about generations too, but very cautious about these are broad sweeping, but here's, you know, here's some things to just keep in mind. Like, you know, right. like you look at, you know, millennial and Gen Z, they never, I was saying to my son the other day, I go, you guys don't have a card catalog in your library. <laughs> you, you never had to go to the card catalog. And then I was like, oh my God, you know, and like, you don't know what it, it means to have like a, a phone that has a cord attached to it or, right. you know, right. like little things like that and and so but what i see is regardless of of those differences is it's really this unwillingness it, it, it's like we're in our comfort zone and and having everything through the filter of how we've experienced life and an unwillingness to turn our lens outward or have what we call an outward mindset to really look at what are the needs objectives and challenges of this other person so as an example if i'm like my business partner john he's a baby boomer and we always talk about he's like oh get a millennial help or whatever because he's not <laughs> as technologically savvy but right but he says it in a very loving way and on the flip side it could be a oh those dang millennials there, you know, you hear they're entitled or they're this or they're that, or they don't have the work ethic we did, or they don't want, they don't want to put in the work. And yet, you know, I'll talk to millennials because I'm a Gen Xer and they'll be like, they're crazy. Why are you sitting around waiting for that? Like, why don't you, you know, cause you, cause you learn to usher and you know, change. So I think, I think it's just a, are we willing to go beyond our own understanding and filter and seek out others? And I would say it goes beyond generational differences. When you look at this whole past year, with, you know, the blow up with our, you know, racial justice and social inequities. And it's like, are we willing to do the uncomfortable work to look at, you know, filters that we have no clue about? I mean, you know, for, for those that aren't looking at the picture, right. You're, you're, you're a person of color. I'm, I'm white. I mean, there's very differences, but I know that for me, I, I was like, holy crap. I mean, I remember last summer when everything blew up with George Floyd, cause I live in Minneapolis. And I remember sitting there going, I was reading articles and thinking, how did I never learn about redlining? Like, where was I taught this stuff in my history? And I got pissed off. And I started yeah. going like, why do I have a selective? And so it's more of like, I could go, oh, I can either feel sympathy, which is not what you want. You want empathy, or I can start doubling down on my rightness. And you see all this divisiveness in our country. And I think whether it's about generations, whether it's about race, whether it's about you, you name you name the category right now when we think about inclusivity and belonging and it's fundamentally, are we seeking to understand other people and get to know them as a human being? Right. Otherwise you have jerks. <laughs> right. No, you're right. And that's, and, and you just actually, you just, you know, stated my point earlier, you know, what we were talking about earlier about how things have changed now, like before the book came out, those were the four circumstances. Um, but now as you, as you can see, I mean, it's not just limited to that. Right. You've got you've got racial awareness. You've got, you know, gender awareness. I mean, all those things have already been existing. Right. But we we haven't had those conversations until 
you to what we've seen over the past year. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what's so alarming. But I think is it's good that we we've, we've been able to force ourselves to have these conversations, right? From the top down, right? You know, you know, because you know that there's CEOs, there's leaders that that now have a mandate. They have a mandate to have these conversations, to um, to 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 hire more diverse workers, to do all these things in order to empathize with people that you know don't look like us, who look differently, right? And and that's what I think is is a good thing. But it's got it. We got to continue it. It's got to you know. It's got to. It can't just be you know the flavor of the uh, for the time being. It's got to be consistent and sustained um, because that's where you see real change. Yeah. Yeah, it cannot just be a check the box because oh, it's a thing to do this year. It's like, no, we have to really take a good, I mean, we. I look at it in the context of your work. We've got to take a good hard look at where we have been jerks, yeah. like individually and collectively, whether it was intentional or unintentional, but we have got to take a good hard look, look at where we have been jerks in our lives, where we have you know, um, skip past or disregarded somebody else for whatever, whether it was the, because of their race or because of their gender orientation or because of, because of their generation or fill in the blank. And I think that we have to look at as a collective society, um, whether it's organizations or communities, society as a whole, where we've been jerks. So that, so I think that gets me into, um, the other question I want to ask you specific to, to your work about how to work with jerks is, okay, this is all great and dandy. Like I can look at myself and, do work if I've been a jerk, but let's be honest, like I might be working with people who, you know, you said like they're a jerk and they don't care or whatnot. So what, what advice do you have for people when you have to get stuff done yet you are working with jerks? Like what do you do to survive or maybe even thrive in an environment that is full of jerks? Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you, 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 you brought that up. So here's what people have done, right? I'll just share real quick what people have done. You know, some people that get so frustrated, they, they say, you know, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go get a new job. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, if, if, you know, by all means, if you're not comfortable in that environment, right. And, and you need to leave, go ahead and leave, but just remember, all right. It's almost like that movie. I don't know if you ever saw the movie wall street, the original movie. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, so so Michael Douglas's character, he said something to the effect of, you know, same dog, different fleas. So when you leave that job and you try to get another one, there's the grass isn't always green on the other side. You may we may bump into an even worse jerk, right? With 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 you know worse intentions, right? So you got to be cautious of that. Some people they say, oh well, you know what? I'm gonna go go to HR or go to my manager, and I'm gonna get them to mitigate the situation and and help resolve the conflict or get that person to stop being a jerk. Well, that's fine too, and by no means, but I I wouldn't discourage anyone from going to HR or going to man or going to management. But just remember that jerks, you know, they could be one step ahead of you. They can go to HR, they go to the manager with their own side of the situation. So now you got two different stories which requires an investigation and, and looking into and all those things, which, which can take months. All the while, you're still in that situation and you haven't really resolved the problem to move forward. So all those things, they could work, but I think the most effective approach are, are the approaches that I have identified in my book. So the first thing um, that I'll share with you is called the Assess, Analyze, Act method. It's a three-step process that helps people really manage um, stressful situations with other people and also any kind of conflict in general. So it's a three-step process. The first thing is, you know, if you're in conflict, you're in a stressful situation, you want to assess that situation, meaning what is your body language telling you, 
right? Is your heart beating fast? Are your palms sweaty? Um, do you feel like you're stuttering because you know, you're about to you know, tell somebody off? Those are all indicators. Your body is telling you something that you are under a stressful situation. The first moment that you can really associate that, you can understand what your body's telling you, then you can analyze, which means that you want to analyze what's causing your body to act that way. Maybe you were caught in traffic and you were you know, late going to a certain meeting, or maybe you've got way too many competing priorities and you just can't really get your head around any of them. And this is the last thing you want to deal with, right? So once you're able to assess and then analyze, then you can take that third step, which is act. You can consider all the information that you have available. You can make sure you come up with a more thoughtful, more respectful, more measured response before making those knee-jerk reactions, pardon the pun, um, you know, when you're, when you're in those situations. Because a lot of times when you're stressed out, we just go right to step three and just act. You just say the first thing that's on your mind and it makes a bad situation worse. So what you should do is take those first two steps, assess the situation and then analyze and then act. This is a quick process that people can use. Um, I encourage people to practice it because it really keeps people from damaging those relationships, but it keeps you above ground. It keeps you, um, you know, with that, with that, with the level head to make sure that you are, yeah, you may be working with a jerk, but you didn't, you didn't contribute to that situation. You can continue to move on. Um, one of the things that I want to make clear though, is that a lot of times people get stressed out because they want to stop someone else from being a jerk, right? They want, they, they spend so much time and energy from, do, from doing that. They don't realize that the only thing that you can really control is your response to the situation. And that's why the assessed, analyzed, act method is so critical because it can help you manage the current situation you're in while you're focusing on, you know, a much broader plan to get out of that situation or manage it even better. And sometimes when you take that approach, that person that's acting like a jerk, they get disarmed. They get disarmed and they're like, you know what? Let me stop being a jerk. You know, they're like, they may unknowingly just stop that. You know, so that three-step process I recommend, but also there's um, five traits that I recommend um, people take a look at in the book. Um, it's recognition, drive, poise, it's um, perspective, and um, rapport. Those are, these are timeless, flexible tools that you can use at any, you know, given moment according to the situation. You can use them all at one time. Or maybe you might need to use one versus another, um, but they're outlined um, in detail in the book to help you really understand what it is and how to use them um, according to the kind of person or jerk, if you will, that you're dealing with. Yeah, I love that. In fact, the, it, after you talk about the five star traits and the the AAA method in your book, you say success depends on your ability to stay composed in adversity manage conflict and manage relationships. And so I love that because, you know, I, I go back to what I said earlier is if we can build that muscle to pause before we act right. uh, and we recognize, you know, yeah, we can't, we can only control ourselves or how we react to situations. And it doesn't mean, and I want to be really clear for the listeners. I always say, it doesn't mean that we become a human doormat and we don't set healthy boundaries or we yes. tolerate certain behaviors, but we can, we can be very clear about, is this a time where I'm going to set a boundary and say, Hey, you don't get to talk to me that way. And, or I have a choice to go. Am I really going to let that person, am I going to give my emotional energy and power, if you will, away to this person, you know, so we have choices that we can right. make. Um, and so I think it's really it's really going back to how we define leadership, which is leadership is maximizing our positive impact on the world by a becoming our best fully authentic self. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that pausing and you know, the, the assess, yeah. analyze and act. And yeah. then B 
supporting those around us to break past barriers and step into their greatness. So like you said, if we're showing up more grounded, less reactive, it does kind of diffuse some of that jerkness around us. If you other people know they can't get our goat. And I would say we train people how to treat us. And if they know that, Hey, you know what, Eric's going to stay calm, cool and collected, or he's not going to take the bait. They're going to go somewhere else. And so your, your surroundings get a little less, you know, they, they're more jerk free or, or full of less drama, if you will. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I could just add one more thing to that, Rosie too, it also generates trust. All right. We were talking about a lot of, you know, the, the things that are going on, you know, with um, with the current events and the social unrest. But it also generates trust. I mean, can you imagine, let's say you're dealing with someone, a jerk who's who doesn't respond well to bad news. All right. And you tell that person, maybe they're your superior. You tell that person there's bad news about what's going on with the project. And that person just flips out. It's like, what is going on? What did you do? Blah, 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 blah. I'm willing to bet that that person may think twice about sharing that bad news or any kind of bad news in the future, right? Yeah. And so when that when that other person fails to use that three-step process in that situation to assess, analyze, and then act, the person on that receiving end um, really, you know, will, will definitely think twice about approaching that person, sharing any bad news, or wanting to interact with that person at all. So that generates trust because then you can trust that person to, to handle those kind of situations or, or any kind of situation that comes your way. You want to be able to trust them. You know, it doesn't matter if they're a leader or, or um, an employee, it doesn't matter, but you need to have that trust that they can handle those situations and manage their emotions. Yeah. Well, what that brings up for me when you're talking about that is really, are we creating an environment of psychological safety? Because we need people to be able to speak up and say, hey, there's a problem here, or hey, I have an idea, or I have a question, or, and if we have people who are holding back because there's a jerk that's going to blow up at them, not only is trust eroded, but you start to decrease psychological safety. And what happens is, and people aren't bringing forward ideas, and either you're not uncovering mistakes sooner where they can be remedied, or people are withholding their ideas, and it's just... It, it, it's, it's not helpful. It's not productive. Yeah. At all. Yeah. You're right. You're right. So I want to, I want to not really shift gear because it's totally aligned with what we've been talking about, but I have some standard questions that I ask all my guests. And when you were talking about your story about, you know, becoming, you know, realizing you became a jerk and really your ego was running the show, you know, not only is our ego a common human experience, right. That wants us to please perform and, and perfect and self-protect, but really that self-protect part, what I've learned is that a lot of times when our ego is running the show, we kind of get into this spot where we tell ourselves these stories that is fueled by our ego that doesn't serve us well. And it actually keeps us and prevents us from showing up as an leader or being effective. And so my first question is, I know you've done a lot of work on yourself, but we're all human. What is a self-limiting story that you find yourself still telling yourself to this day? And when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader in your life? Uh, I, you know what? That's a great question. I would say, I would say sometimes imposter syndrome, you know, being sometimes, um, you know, when I'm working, you know, when I'm, when I, you know, work with the client or I'm in a process of, of um, working with the client um, and, you know, they could be a, a really, you know, big, you know, big client uh, um, that you're, that I'm really happy to, to work with. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, I'm working with, you know, with these, with these kind of big wigs, these fortune 500 companies. Um, sometimes I think back, I think, can I really do this? 
like, am I really ready to do this? Like I'll, you know, sometimes I will, I will question that. And then I look right up at my board. I'm, you know, take a turn to the left. I have this, um, this voice of objective intelligence, which helps remind me um, that, um, that I've got full potential, that I'm more than capable, um, reminds me of all my past um, experiences, all my past successes. Um, and I think it's a defense me mechanism for me to want to be over-prepared to deal with the client and make sure I'm, I'm, I'm addressing their needs when I'm consulting with them or coaching some of their staff. Um, so sometimes I can get in my own head, you know, and, and, and I would say that along with um, treating myself better, you know, mm. treating myself better. Um, I don't think you can, I think sometimes we overlook especially with um, you know, people like us that are in our field where we help other people, we need to be able to help ourselves. And I can take myself way too seriously and beat my own self up um, for whatever things, whether it's a shortcoming or whether it's a certain situation. And I don't take enough time to practice that self-compassion. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know that, I know, I think you were asking, asking for one, but I had to give up those two yeah. um, for you. Well, what, what I, I'm smiling as you say those, just because it is so universal. I, I don't think a week goes by where I'm not working with a leader or a team and imposter syndrome rears its ugly head. It is so universal. It's not even funny. And I know myself sometimes like, oh my God, like, how the hell am I going to pull this one off? Right. Like, you're like, do they know why they hired me? Um, but then the other, right. Like actually I, people who know me, I joke that like I could replace all of the letters and credentials after my name with QMSU. I'm the queen of making shit up. Right. <laughs> I love it. But, but then I go, no, like I have a lot of knowledge and skills and I'm creative and it's like, okay, they have a problem and this is how I think I would do it. But right. But if you get in your own head, I go down that path versus yep. like, no, like I have value I can add here. So I think that's very universal. And I would also say the being hard on ourselves again, I'm going to just quote Brene Brown because she says it all the time, but we have to talk to ourselves. Like we would talk to someone we love. And I, and I actually find that the more, um, however you define success, whether it's you have loving relationships or a thriving business or whatever, but the more that people feel successful in their life, I find that the harder that they sometimes can be on themselves. And so I think practicing that self-compassion and grace is, is like everyone does it. And so I just love that because this is all about trying to normalize that experience for the people who listen to this. So, so then um, one more question is what is one impactful way that you are showing up as a leader this life, both in your work life, as well as your personal life? I am, I am focusing right now on my family and I am being much more empathetic. And the reason for that is because we, since we've been under COVID, we have people who are wearing multiple hats on right now. They're not just you know, a client or they don't have the, in addition to their current title, they are a teacher. They are um, a plumber. They are doing all these things at home. And can you imagine that on top of doing your job, on top of focusing on all these other things, it can be extremely overwhelming. And if I can't empathize with that, with my own situation, with my family, with my four-year-old daughter, my two-year-old son, all right? If I can't be my best self to them, then I, how can I possibly do that to 
the people that I work with, the people who are on the front lines that are showing up every day on the screen, just like you and me right now, with all the things that they have going on. So I think if I, if I work on my family, that helps me be more empathetic and that helps translate that over to the people that I work with. So that's what I would add to that. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I definitely think this past year has put into perspective what matters. And I know that even when we can travel again, I'm even rethinking, am I going to travel as much as I did? Am I going to be, am I going to work as many hours as I used to? And for me, I will say personally, this last year has been a big reset in terms of boundaries and and, um, being realistic about my bandwidth and what do I need to show up as my best and stuff. So I love that. So, so I want to go into my, uh, the quick questions or rapid fire set of, of, so they start out a little bit more serious and then they get kind of silly if you're gay. Okay. So, all right. Sure, of course. All right. So, so first question is fill in the blank. Living authentically is. Living authentically is being true to yourself. Absolutely. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? You show up. I love it, man. Yep. You, show up. You, show, you show up. It's like, what, Nike, just do it? I love it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you just do it. I mean, I learned, I mean, you know, there's a couple mentors, if I could just elaborate real quick on that, why I said yeah. that, is because um, a former mentor once told me one time, you know, when you're getting ready to speak, you don't get ready, you stay ready, right? But at the same time is that people, I think genuine people will much rather you show up than be be perfect, you know, have, have something that's completely, you know, um, across the board perfection. They want someone who's genuine. And sometimes when you're not ready to do that, you still got to be ready to do that because you owe it to the people that you're working with and that you're trying to serve. So I just say you show up. I love it. Yeah. I always say people want realness and authenticity over polish and perfection any day. There you go. So so just show up, just do. Yep. When's the last time, speaking of showing up, when's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up? Oh, the last time I was courageous, my, my wife will kill me uh, <laughs> saying this, thank goodness she's not around here. Um, so she, um, she was recently diagnosed with Crohn's disease and, um, you know, she really needed me to help, you know, help support her and, 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 um, and, and really make sure that, you know, I, I took her to her doctors and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I had some, you know, some, some competing priorities, but I needed to make sure that my wife was okay. And so that was, this was just recently, probably, probably about, about a week ago. Oh, wow. And yeah. Yeah. And, um, I said, you know what, nothing else matters right now. You know, nothing else matters right now. You know, we need to get you into remission. Um, you need to know that I'm here for you, you know, because if, if you don't work, then we don't work. And I needed to make sure I had to stop everything. And I just had to make sure that, you know, she had every, all the support that she needed in order to, um, to, to get her matter addressed. Well, I love that. Not only is that being an amazing husband and human being, but it goes into what you're saying about showing up as a leader, like your family, right? So you yeah. love that, love that. And, and ho- hopefully that uh, her, her journey to health is a, is a speedy and full one. Yeah, she's coming along. Thank you. Good, good, good. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? Okay. Yeah. So this, I'll, I'll have a little fun with this one. So um, I'm originally from Connecticut and um, New Haven, Connecticut. And I don't care where you are, where you're from. New Haven, Connecticut has got the best pizza, the best pizza in the world. 
So even before COVID, I would, um, when I would make my rounds to see my, some of my family and friends, I would go to my top five pizza places and I would stack up maybe 15, 20 boxes of pizza and bring them to Maryland, to, to my home um, and freeze it. And I would eat it probably all weekend and just stretch it out all the time. Um, I haven't done it since I haven't been over there, but I found that you can order online now, but I'm a big pizza person and I will not eat any other pizza other than New Haven, Connecticut pizza. Huh. All right. Well, next time I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, I'm going to call you up and go, Eric, where, where, yeah. where do I go? Okay. <laughs> I love I'll that. set you straight. I got you. <laughs> well, you know, what's funny is that's going to be a nice tie into probably the next question. So okay. this is one I like to use as icebreakers and it's kind of a fun, you know, conversation you can have with friends, family, but I call it the four C's. And so this is if money and reality were no object, what car would you want to have? What country would you want to visit? What cuisine would you want to eat? Maybe it'd be pizza, maybe not, but it doesn't have to be related to the country at all. And then what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with? Ooh, okay. Right? So yeah, I like this one. All right. You, so, you can use it in your next gathering. It's it's, it's not copyrighted. So. I, I, yeah, I think I might use Yeah, I think I might use it. Um, so for the car, I would say... I was going to talk about my old school Pontiac Grand Am, but no, 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 no. I, I can, I think I can level up these days. Um, I, I, I will say um, um, the latest version of the BMW. Latest okay. version of BMW. All right. Um, that was car. And then the country. other one. Country, Costa Rica. Ooh, I've never yeah. been there, but it looks lovely. I would love to go there sometime. It's favorite place to go. Um, it's how I learned how to speak the Spanish language. It's changed me. It, it just changed everything about me. The person who I am today, I owe it to being in Costa Rica. And I would encourage you to go there, anyone to go there. I mean, a lot's changed since I've been there, but yeah, hands down, Costa Rica. Got it. It's, it's, it's towards the top of my list for sure. What yeah. cuisine would you eat? Cuisine? Um... Wow, I, I would probably I would probably eat pizza. I, I was gonna say, I was, that's what I was gonna say. Is it gonna be pizza? Yeah, I think it's gonna be pizza. I, <laughs> from New, from Haven, New Haven, Connecticut. Connecticut. New, New Haven, Haven, Connecticut, Connecticut pizza. pizza. Yes, you're absolutely. gonna bring you're gonna bring New Haven, Connecticut pizza to Costa Rica. And then what celebrity living or dead are you gonna eat that pizza with? What celebrity? Um. You know what? I think I would, I would, I would have it with, with Kobe Bryant. I think, mm. I think I would eat it with Kobe Bryant because um, when, when he passed that really, that really hurt me. It's like, when you look at people that are doing so well, uh, well at life and just accomplishing so many great things after the, what they did day in and day out, um, you kind of take them for granted. You kind of think that you got all the time in the world to catch up, you know, to learn about them and do this and do that. Um, but if I had the ability, I would eat with him and I would pick his brain about really what it took to dominate the NBA and all the things that he was doing, um, you know, with his philanthropy um, and just, you know, being a great model citizen, you know, for the world. So I think it would be him. All right. Awesome. All right. Your favorite go to movie. I would say The Dark Knight. Yeah, The Dark Knight. Um, I That's yeah, that's. Yeah, that is my favorite movie right now. Yeah, the dark. All right, yeah. all right. Your your go to song. I would say um, Celia da Cruz, wow. and um, oh, I forgot the name of the song, but uh, um, La, La Vida. 
Um, La Vida es una... Say it a cruz. I can't remember the song, but it is my I, I, I use several uh, of, of the songs in my Zumba classes over the years. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you're, speaking of that, your signature dance move. Oh, it's it's salsa. It's salsa. That's my oh, okay. Next dance. time, next time we we meet in person, we're salsa yeah. dancing. We're totally Absolutely. salsa dancing. Okay. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. In another life, your job or career would be. Oh, uh, okay. It would have been a lawyer. <laughs> had I, had I passed the LSATs, it probably would have been a lawyer. <laughs> Any particular type of law? Um, criminal defense. Mm. Yeah. All right. You know, what's funny is once upon a time when I, when I first went off to college, I was undecided in my major and law was one I I seriously thought about going into many, many times. And then I shift, you know, shifted gears, but so, (laughs) yeah. Um, all right. What is, and I say something lightly because it doesn't have to be a thing, but what is something you can't live without? I can't live without my children. Yeah. I can't live without my children. I mean, my wife too, but definitely my children though. I mean, my four-year-old and two-year-old, they are, they're the best. The best. I love it. Sometimes. Take it <laughs> right. It depends on are we having a good day or a bad day. Right, right. right. They test my patience, and that's where I learned it from. Yep. What's something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? I would say um, putting my kids to bed. Mm. Putting my kids to bed, saying my prayers with them, um, talking with them, reading a reading a story. That is, I think that's my favorite thing. Yeah. Love that. Love that. It makes my heart happy just hearing about it. Yeah. My, my, my son is 10. So he's like, bye. Like yeah. I don't get to put him to bed anymore. So relish that. Yeah. <laughs> and last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? I am grateful that my family has been um, healthy and safe throughout, despite the circumstances. Um, and that, uh, yeah, they're you know we continue to be together and um, they're they're doing just fine right now. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, this has been such a pleasure, and um, I've I've learned a ton from you, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed this, and I think our listeners are going to. So, just thank you for who you are. Thank you for this wonderful conversation, and just thank you for being here. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, Rosie. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com, where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at drrosieward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.